Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Gingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today, today is November 17th, 2023. A happy Thanksgiving to all those who will be celebrating in the coming days. Before you head off on your vacation, or if you need to listen while you make the turkey and stuffing, here's some interesting FDA news that we unearthed over the last few days. First up is the upcoming departure of who can truly be described as a legend in the pharma world. Janet Woodcock, the longtime director of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research and current principal, FD, principal deputy commissioner of the FDA, has decided to retire. Sarah, what do we know at this point? Um, well, <laughs> you know, we know she's expected to um, leave early 2024. Um, we don't know anything about a potential replacement for her in the commissioner's office or really um, what she's going to do next. Um, although, you know, she it seems like she may want to, at least for some initial period of time, have more of a traditional retirement. It's not necessarily like she's moving on from FDA to take another position. And, you know, I think we know that Wilcock has been extremely impactful at FDA over the years. She's been at FDA um, longer than I've been alive, um, <laughs> which is uh, kind of crazy to think about, um, you know, and she has kind of had her hands on a lot of stuff over the years. Um, and she's sort of part of a a broader trend of a generation that people over the past few years have been watching leave FDA and have kind of wondered, you know, have they built up sort of the, you know, long-term sort of team to to take the reins <laughs> moving forward. So I think that will be something interesting to watch. Certainly, you know, I think for a lot of people maybe who kind of listen to the podcast and are very heavily focused on CEDAR, the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, perhaps, you know, for them, you know, this has been almost like a little bit of a drawn out exit for Woodcock, who, you know, left CEDAR during um, the pandemic to sort of lead up very specific COVID work. Then, you know, she was in the acting commissioner for a while um, before um, Dr. Califf um, came into that role um, when Biden became president. And, you know, since then she's and since Califf came in, she's been a lot of her work has actually been in the food space, um, veterinary medicine, helping FDA on projects that actually, you know, are a little bit outside perhaps what she is known for. So, um, you know, I think for certain companies or, you know, parts of the industry that have been used to working with Woodcock over the years, they maybe sort of already said goodbye to her to some degree. Uh, not that she hasn't been working on some things that impact her, you know, one of the last things um, that she's finishing up as a big um, Office of Regulatory Affairs reorg, which is sort of started, I think, because of some of the issues going on in the food space, but um, will certainly have impacts for, you know, all parts of the products that FDA regulates. Yeah, I think the the big question that people keep wanting to ask is, you know, I, mean, I don't even know if legend is is quite quite does her justice. I mean that that's how big a figure Janet Woodcock has been at the FDA for so long. But um, you know, just the institutional knowledge and you know the just the the you know the 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 knowledge of the precedents and and F and you know kind of FDA policy and you know kind of the you know this is how we do things type of 
stuff that, you know, yeah, there's other people around who know that, but, you know, just not having Janet to kind of ask that question, those kinds of questions to, it's, it's going to be difficult, I guess, you know, it, it, uh, I think you mentioned in your story that, you know, somebody told you that, you know, one person probably can't fill this void. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, she was really described as somebody who in some ways was able to kind of do it all. You know, some people kind of are expert, you know, kind of are the type of people that develop, you know, expertise in one particular area. And she was somebody that really was able to, you know, both, you know, be very deep into the science and think about risk benefit decisions, but also be, you know, just a really good manager and a project manager. And she cared a lot about like IT systems and stuff at FDA that, you know, um, some people I think would think is kind of like boring and, you know, even maybe <laughs> sort of above, I think, her or below, you know, sort of, you know, her her pay grade and stuff. So, yeah, the sense was kind of like, you know, like as much as people, you know, a lot of people, you know, love and admire Janet Woodcock and feel like, how can you ever have somebody else like her? And of course, you'll never have another exact thing like you will, you know, there will be other, you know, great employees for FDA. It's just a matter of like, you're probably not going to find somebody with like all of her skills and certainly not somebody with all of her skills right away to take her place. Um, you know, like FDA will probably have to rely on a number of different people to assume some of the things she was doing there, um, which which I think is notable, particularly when you think about, I mean, I remember when we thought she might be leaving when Caliph came in and talking to a lot of the former FDA commissioners and it's like, it's it's just kind of impressive how many former, you know, senior leaders of FDA she sort of advised over the years and people that come from all different, you know, sort of political viewpoints and philosophies around FDA regulation and all of them greatly respect her, even if, you know, they weren't didn't always see eye to eye on everything, but you, you can't just replace that that easily and yeah, we did a did a story uh, as her uh, acting uh, commissioner uh, tenure was uh, uh, winding down. Uh, basically, kind of looking at um, you know this congressional hearing that she had testified at, and her kind of musing about what could have been. She was, in addition to sort of all the things that uh, um, uh, Sarah just rattled off, and uh, you know, you had to sort of kind of. Uh, um, Pause for uh, for a breath several times in terms of listening to kind of what uh, what uh, uh, Dr. Woodcock could do, and uh, you know we weren't even done yet, but uh, you know she was very good at the kind of interagency, you know Washington politics part of it. That sort of that uh, that story, uh, you know, looked at her kind of how she you know handled herself very well in the congressional hearings, and she was uh, obviously very adept at navigating uh, you know the the uh, the broader uh, federal bureaucracy as uh, as well. And there were just so many sort of kind of components to that, uh, um, that magistry that uh, she, she could bring to her any situation that's her kind of is, uh, you know, will we'll sorely, sorely be lacking. But uh, um, as uh, Sarah mentioned, uh, you know, in, in, in some ways the unthinkable had already been uh, contemplated. Uh, you know, she, she did leave uh, uh, Cedar and uh, it was, uh, um, I think hard for some people to accept that, like, you know, she's actually not running theater anymore. That's her kind of, that, uh, you know, that's her kind of a world in which uh, Janet Woodcock uh, wasn't there, was her kind of not, uh, not some world they wanted to be in. And, you know, theater has gone on to do, uh, um, you know, good stuff. And they're sort of on, the, on track for a uh, very solid uh, um, NDA approval year this year. And, 
you know, it, uh, life, life goes on and obviously, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, um, the, uh, the drug, uh, regulatory environment will be a, uh, not, not as bright one without sort of kind of, uh, Janet's, uh, uh, star gleaming, uh, gleaming there, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the agency and the, uh, industry will find a way, uh, um, uh, but it is, it is, a, it is a sad day to think about, uh, think about that she really is, uh, going away. I don't think people realize, you know, kind of, you know, how the, the current FDA structure, like how much influence she had, she had over that, like the, I mean, I, I mean, I still remember being surprised when she said, we're creating, we're launching the office of pharmaceutical quality, which was a, that was a huge deal. It was a super office within Cedar. And she said, I'm, I'm handling this myself. I'm changing, I'm, I'm handing off my, some of my reporting duties to other people and I'm going to do this myself. When the Office of New Drugs was reorganized, when they, they were looking for a new O&D director, she went and did that herself, handed off a bunch of duties and just did and, and took it over. She was she was involved in some of the, you know, much earlier kind of restructuring of, of the review teams, too, I think. And I'm, I'm just I'm blanking on what it was. But, yeah, it's 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 amazing to think about, you know, kind of how much the current structure of the agency is, at least in part influenced by her. Yeah, I think yesterday, Derek, I read in one of your old stories about how, you know, she had she helped move the FDA from like paper to computers. And, you know, the so I mean, you know, the amount of like transformation, you know, that's happened at the FDA over her career, I think is probably hard for people to grasp who haven't followed this space. But, you know, she sort of is credited with really kind of creating like formal structures and organization in the FDA and in some ways doing it in a way so that FDA could survive no matter who who was there you know without certain key leadership you know if you create an organization and structure that is strong and has certain processes and procedures the ideas you know that that it can withstand different leadership changes and so forth and I, I know we don't want to sit here and and just you know give talk, you know we could talk all day giving with your various Janet Woodcock stories but um I was always surprised at too at how you know given her position she was such a high-ranking official at the FDA and you know was widely known you know around Washington around the you know farm industry etc you know she would she she didn't like travel with PR people in tow from the agency to kind of keep the media and other people away she always she was always willing to talk to people. She would talk to people after, you know, she'd speak at conferences and and there'd be a line of people waiting to speak to her afterwards. She spoke to everybody. She would, you know, patients would come up to her, you know, and, and she would talk to them. You know, she would go. My, my favorite was that she liked to take the metro, which is the subway here in Washington, to into into uh, town, into into the city rather than like take the FDA like car service. And there'd be even times when, you know, you'd be at a Capitol Hill hearing and I would, sometimes I would just walk out of the building as the FDA contingent was leaving. All of them would be waiting for the car to come to take them back to White Oak or wherever they were going. Janet would keep walking down the sidewalk and turn the corner and go to Union Station to the subway platform because she she took the subway. She didn't take the car service. I just thought it was it's just hilarious to think about. Yeah, that uh, that incredible sort of groundedness uh, um, uh, and uh, just sort of kind of uh, um, 
uh, you know, sort of, kind of intellect and uh, um, uh, together in one package is, you know, as uh, we've been saying, it's just sort of kind of hard to uh, hard to think about sort of kind of what, uh, you know, who, who else could do, could do those things. Yeah, I think one thing that came up a little bit yesterday, too, was sort of, um, you know, you mentioned, Derek, that she was willing to talk and engage with people. And I think that came up, too in the web reporting I did a couple of years ago um, in terms of how she would interact with industry, both in terms of like sort of just being willing to pick up the phone and talk to people. But I think someone told me then again, she'd be willing to sort of use that sort of like Woodcock diplomacy or whatever you're calling it, right? Like you didn't have, she didn't, you didn't necessarily have to send a warning letter. She might like call a company and say like, look, like you can't do this and cut it out. And, you know, she had sort of those, that that relationship and connection and, you know, sort of a different way of interacting, you know, with the various populations, you know, she, she served, which is maybe, you know, just I think like more people see the agency as a bit distant <laughs> these days. And so, you know, people are less willing to engage in that way. So that will be something um, interesting to watch or think about moving forward, you know, as different generations of leaders take over here here's an interesting question that i was uh, that i'm pondering and i don't know i don't even know if we could answer it maybe but is it possible to measure to give a measurement of the power and the influence she had over the entire agency and in and maybe industry i mean i'm wondering if she had enough you know whether you want to call it soft power or whatever that she had more of that than say maybe even some of the commissioners that she served under. Yeah, so that, like, what again, when I um, wrote about, you know, her career in um, a couple years ago, I talked to Daniel Carpenter at Harvard, who's sort of a historian with, you know, sort of specialized in FDA. And, you know, he talked a, a bit about that idea that, you know, being the head of CEDAR, is just this particularly powerful position for a number of reasons. And in many ways, you know, he would argue is perhaps more powerful than the FDA commissioner because and in large part, it's due to user fees, right? So her budget was so heavily reliant on user fees from industry that she really didn't have to, to a certain degree, answer to the FDA's commissioner's office. You know, there's some oversight of Congress, but, you know, it's, you know, Congress is there, but it's not, but, you know, again, but you have a lot of independence there. So really, you know, she had a lot of, um, you know, power to wield. And he, I mean, I think he would argue maybe it was too unchecked. Um, and certainly there are people that are were frustrated with some of her decisions because of that, you know, the Sarepta, um, the Treplison one is sort of the one that comes up a lot because she, you know, really fully overruled her staff there and um, the FDA commissioner kind of deferred to her. So, yeah, I think there is this like idea that like the top person in certain government agencies and so forth and the person with all the power is, you know, the, you know, the top executive, but Carpenter, you know, makes the case that these long standing, you know, I almost said civilian, but, um, what what's the word for non-political appointee career <laughs> um, career yes career. thank you <laughs> you know really in some ways ha have more power and influence with sometimes less checks than you know the political appointees 
civil service. I think that's what I was going for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, we still have we still have some time before you know she takes off, and I'm sure all the tributes are going to be coming in. There'll be I'm sure there'll be awards and parties and all kinds of stuff for when she goes. But um, you know, I, I think we would all wish her a a fulfilling retirement that um, I, I'm I assume we all agree is well earned. Yes. And as as we all know, it seems like she's been trying to some degree to retire for 10 years and can never quite do it. So um, hopefully she's, you know, ready to actually um, pull back and relax for a little bit now. Yes. <laughs> Next up is accelerated approval. Sue, we saw yet another advisory committee meeting on an oncology product that had not been that had been given accelerated approval, but was way behind in its confirmatory trial. So what happened there? Right. So the oncologic drugs advisory committee um, was convened yesterday to discuss two what might be referred to as delinquent or prolonged accelerated approvals. Um, the drugs are pralatrexate and belinostat, and the it's the same sponsor for both drugs, Acrotech Bio, and they're both approved for treating relapsed or refractory peripheral T-cell lymphoma. Pralatrexate was granted accelerated approval in 2009, belinostat received it in 2014, and neither has confirmed benefit, clinical benefit yet. And Acrotech's current plan is it just got a new phase three trial underway, a two-part uh, trial. The first part is involves a dose optimization portion, and then the second part will be the actual phase three part. And their current timeline for this is study completion in, in 2030. So we would be looking at 21 years since pralatrexate was approved and 16 years since uh, Belenistat was approved. And so the Oncology Center of Excellence and its notorious leader, Rick Pazder, um, wanted to make an example of this, of yeah. this company and these products. They, were, they are the two products with the longest outstanding confirmatory trial requirements. And wow. um, so they can, they are not, FDA never, no, clearly said it was not proposing to withdraw the drugs. There are very few options for peripheral T-cell lymphoma, and it's a rare disease. So FDA made that very clear, that they were not looking to withdraw. However, they wanted to bring this to light. They wanted to throw transparency on these two products. They wanted to draw some lessons learned from these two products. And they also wanted the advisory committee's input on whether these were reasonable timelines. And basically the, <laughs> the advisory committee said, no, they're not reasonable timelines. Um, it's ridiculous, in fact. So what the committee strongly urged um, was they, they, they really backed the suggestion that Pazder made himself was that the company, the company's phase three trial is in uh, a frontline setting. But Pazder and the, the ODAC members said the company should also be conducting another confirmatory trial, shorter, smaller, in the relapsed refractory setting. Um, that will, you should be able to generate data a lot faster in that setting. So the company 
would not commit to that. You know, they said they're thinking about it. I mean, I think the obvious issues would be how you would enroll such a study when the when the drugs are already out there for relapsed refractory peripheral T cell lymphoma. But you know, I guess that could be done XUS also. But um, it was sort of a it was a typical Rick Pazder advisory committee um, had a Pazder moment where he pounced on the company and wanted to want to wanted a public commitment from the company that they would, in fact, conduct a second confirmatory trial in this relaxed refractory setting. So it made for some uncomfortable moments for the sponsor. Let's put it that way. Yes, yeah, Sue, I, uh, I'm excited that we should have some uh, notorious uh, uh, OCE uh, um, merchandise or uh, logos uh, made up based on your, <laughs> your coinage uh, uh, there. So, uh, or maybe a notorious uh, um, uh, RIC for the first letters of Rick. I'm trying to make, make it match VIG better. But uh, um, so, uh, uh, really uh, uh, can't recommend Sue's pieces uh, on this uh, uh, highly enough. And I. Um, I hadn't appreciated that the uh, FDA has uh, progressed its uh, um, uh, descriptions of these things. Uh, you know, the the dangling uh, um, approvals. I thought always had some sort of charm, but now they've uh, also started calling things uh, delinquent, uh, which seems a little angrier. Uh, um, are we going to sort of kind of see a third D uh, um, term come out at uh, at some point, uh, Sue? Do you think, or this is sort of kind of uh, um, where sort of kind of uh, FDA has wound up uh, on that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Dangling is is how they refer to confirmatory trials that have failed, but the product's still on the market. Delinquent is how they previously have referred to confirmatory trials that either were delayed or never done. Um, I don't think they actually used the term delinquent yesterday. The term that they used several times was prolonged accelerated approval. And so, you know, there was a lot of focus on um, sponsors are required to conduct these confirmatory trials with due diligence. Well, how do you define that and how do you enforce it? Right. So I think um, and Rick Pastor made an interesting comment at one point on one of his um, uh, lectures about nobody with a straight face could say that this development program was done with due diligence. Nobody, he said. So I think there are some takeaways from the meeting in terms of what FDA expects in terms of due diligence from a company. And one of those, a few of those points are that it wants to see a very comprehensive plan for for confirming benefit that possibly includes multiple trials in different settings. And it also wants sponsors to talk to it as soon as they become aware that there might be delays or issues with accrual in a confirmatory trial. It definitely wants more proactive communication with sponsors on this topic. Although it does seem that the agency is somewhat uh, stuck since they're uh, not um, uh, eager to uh, uh, pull the products. Uh, what else can they do aside from just for kind of ask uh, nicely and hope the uh, the sponsor uh, conducts the trials uh, expeditiously. Right. Well, in this case, I think that's where this idea of another, a second confirmatory trial shorter and faster comes up because there were a number of people at yesterday's meeting who said, we do not want to be back here in 10 years. You know, if the trial didn't go well, the, the phase three trial didn't go well, or if it's still not completed, we don't want to be rehashing this again. Um, I admit I don't know what's in the in the 
peripheral T-cell lymphoma pipeline. Um, you know, presumably if something were to come along that got regular approval for the, for the broader indication of PTCL, that could certainly change FDA's view on whether to withdraw the accelerated approvals of pralotrexate and belenistat. Um, there is a drug approved for a, a small subset of PTCL, so that would not encompass the entire um, population there. So, but yeah, I mean, their hands are kind of tied. And, and Pastor said that at one point yesterday. He said, "We're really limited in what we can do." You know, once a, once a drug gets out there, we can withdraw, but it's not always appropriate to withdraw. You know, it's about Particularly, I mean, they definitely felt that way in this case at this stage with the th therapeutic landscape being what it was. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, in your story where you talked about there there was a, a mention that they thought maybe this was a strategy to kind of just run out the patents on it yes. and just kind of just let it, you know, it's like if we will just delay it as long as we possibly can and then the patents will run out and it'll go generic and then we just can let it go. <laughs> Yes, that was a comment by one of the ODAC members. I've not looked at the patents for these two drugs, so I can't speak to that. But he, he said that a couple of times. Um, and, you know, it certainly does raise questions. There, are, I mean, there are other reasons why these trials have been delayed. Part of it was also that the NDAs have changed ownership a few times. <clears throat> but to FDA's point, any new owner of an NDA is responsible for those confirmatory trial commitments and for conducting them with due diligence. So FDA is not going to give them a full pass for that reason. Yeah, I heard, um, I was at a conference earlier this week where um, Dr. Pastor was talking about this issue too. And, and he was saying that, you know, the, the, the era of getting accelerated approval and saying, you know, we'll get to the confirmatory study when we get to it is over. So, you know, it, it seems like the crackdown, um, if it hasn't already started, is 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 uh, is coming. If you want to call it a crackdown, I don't know if they want to call it that. Yeah, Derek, he made a, a very similar comment yesterday, as in, those days are over, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, they do have, FDA does have this additional authority now under the um, Omnibus Reform Act that they can require a confirmatory trial be ongoing at the time of accelerated approval. And um, Derek, I think you wrote earlier this week uh, that FDA is sort of in the process of defining what ongoing means in that context. Yeah, there, they, there's a, you know, obviously there have been disagreements as you might expect between what the FDA thinks ongoing means and what sponsors might think or argue that ongoing means. So. Uh, yeah, Dr. Pazder said they're writing guidance on this. Uh, apparently, it's in early stages, but they, um, you know, they're going to put it in plain language that what on what ongoing confirmatory studies at the time of accelerated approval is expected to be. Um, he he wouldn't get into details, but he said it's not going to be one patient enrolled when the when the trials are activated. So. There's going to be, I think, some expect some greater expectation that you know these studies are actually moving and can be, you know, follow the schedule that presumably would be agreed to, you know, during the development process. 
Yeah, that my sense from from what I've read out of OCE is, you know, their view of ongoing is substantially enrolled or fully enrolled. And by substantially enrolled, I'm guessing maybe 75%. I mean, that's just my my take on it. Yeah, FDA is uh, often loath or just almost always loath to include hard numbers in guidances just to you know, give themselves uh, uh, flexibility in circumstances where they sort of kind of want to uh, – uh, you know, uh, make a decision sort of in the, in the face of sort of complex or, uh, um, uh, you know, complicated data. Um, you know, they, they famously sort of kind of had those hard numbers in the initial uh, guidance on uh, uh, COVID vaccines, but uh, I, I imagine they're probably not going to include a percentage, and then it's sort of kind of uh, going to be a, a debate and judgment call as to what substantially uh, means. It'll be interesting to see sort of, kind of how that uh, um, winds up being described in the guidance and sort of, kind of what kind of uh, uh, you know, sort of kind of hard targets they uh, they give, or sort of kind of uh, firm language that sort of perhaps doesn't have a number, but sort of kind of makes it more uh, more obvious what uh, um, what they're looking for. And Derek, is had, so is this just an OCE guidance, or is this a CDER and CBER, more generally speaking, guidance? Do you know? Uh, he, I mean, my guess is it's an OCE guidance because. I don't think the the whole of Cedar and C and or Cber kind of wants to, you know, the, wants to be kind of, you know, boxed into, you know, a certain um, uh, whatever you want to call it, a certain policy on this. Um, a lot, a lot of there, there's there. I mean, it's clear that in certain rare diseases in different review divisions that flex more flexibility is preferred. Th that leads back to something else <clears throat> that Dr. Pazder said um, earlier this week at the uh, the Friends of Cancer Research annual meeting. He said that if the confirmatory trial is not underway, they will not grant an accelerated approval. That that is a huge statement, and and he said and it was like not maybe not it's not a gonna not a good idea. It's the answer is no. And he said, I, and he warned the he warned the the people in attendance. He said, I need the cancer community to get behind this, because there might be drugs that are showing promise. They're showing safety and efficacy, and they don't have the confirmatory study underway. They're not going to get approved. And he said, the FDA leadership is behind him on that. So you know, that's a that's a that's a bold statement. I don't know if I know the rare disease community is really really concerned that there would be some kind of blanket statement on confirmatory trials and with accelerated approval. And um, so I don't know if the entire, I don't, I don't know if all of CEDAR and CBER will necessarily, you know, kind of take the same stance. I think they're going to be want to be more flexible. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think you're going to see any kind of blanket statement. I will note that from the research that I've done through, say, the first eight or nine months of accelerated approvals so far this year of novel uh, NMEs and biologics, the trials, confirmatory trials had been underway at the time of approval. But I note that uh, Sieber's recent approval, I think a week or two ago, of a vaccine for, and I'm going to just destroy this this term, <laughs> Chikayunga <laughs> disease, a tropical disease, that included, that was an accelerated approval, and that included two um, accelerated approval post-marketing requirements, neither of, neither of which were underway at the time of approval. So that did stand out to me as an outlier, but 
again, it's a tropical disease, so there are different considerations there. And I'll be interested to look at the review documents for those when they come out to see what sort of reasoning they they provide in there for for why they didn't require these studies to be underway. It's uh, it's interesting and uh, um, perhaps uh, not coincidental that uh, just as uh, um, oncology uh, in the manufacturer led the charge for um, use of uh, accelerated approval and uh, you know that's led to a uh, you know burgeoning over the uh, you know the past many years of uh, oncology products they're now sort of uh, at the uh, for forefront of sort of kind of uh, um, uh, you know tapping the brakes on uh, um, on the use of the mechanism, you know, because in some respects they sort of have this, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, the luxury of abundance of uh, uh, drugs in the pipeline and you know uh, approved therapies. Obviously, sort of not every disease, uh, you know, has a treatment or multiple treatments, or uh, and you know, there's still uh, uh, much uh, product development that needs to be done and uh, um, you know, uh, uh, product delivered to uh, to patients. But uh, um, you know, because they have been so uh, um, uh, open to uh, um, a large amount of uh, of uh, um, flexible development, and obviously sort of kind of the uh, the changing uh, financial dynamics of uh, uh, reimbursement and uh, treatment have sort of kind of uh, you know led to company uh, attention in oncology as as well. That uh, um, you know they now sort of kind of are, are feeling like well we have too many of these accelerated approvals. We got to sort of figure out how to uh, how to make sure we've got. Uh, um, you know, got a good uh, good handle on making sure that they uh, become full approvals. Whereas in uh, other areas that have not sort of seen that uh, um, uh, level of uh, development, there's still uh, uh, you know perhaps more eagerness to uh, allow uh, um, a uh, accelerated approval without having a uh, um, a trial underway uh, beforehand. Yeah, I don't think oncology's enthusiasm for accelerated approval has waned. I think it just wants tighter guardrails around the process. It wants to make sure that the process is working the way it was intended. You either confirm benefit and convert to traditional approval within a relatively short period of time, or you confirm that your, your product isn't associated with any clinical benefit and you get withdrawn. It's I think they want to avoid having these things dragged out for years and years, even with the so-called new expedited withdrawal procedures for accelerated approval under the Omnibus Reform Act. They're going through this now with oncopeptides over Papaxto through those new procedures. Um, so, you know, I think they're trying to avoid these drawn out affairs. Well, and Matt, like you said, we're, you know, Oncology led the charge to and really embraced accelerated approval before a lot of other divisions. They've also are much further along in terms of having the infrastructure to support accelerated approval. You have you have endpoints that are verified that can be surrogates, unlike you know pick a rare disease at this point. Uh, that's a, it's a huge complaint um, in that community that. You know, we 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 can't use, we want to use accelerated approval, but we but it's incredibly difficult because we can't we don't have verified and validated endpoints. And when we ask the FDA if we can use this endpoint, they say, well, you know, we don't know if that does. You know, we don't know. So it's a <clears throat> it, it's it's a it's a difficult question. And at the same time, you're trying to say that 
um, you know, we want to make sure that these studies, that the clinical benefits are confirmed where, the, you know, in a in the rare disease setting, at least I've been told this, that you can't, it's difficult to invest, especially for a lot of these small biotechs in putting together the confirmatory study when you're, you might not be at the stage where your endpoints are even accepted yet. You know, whether it's mid-review or earlier in the review or whatever, you're trying to put together a schedule to confirm benefit when you don't even know if the data, you know, the endpoints that is gonna, the endpoints are going to get you to the first finish line, so to speak. So it's a, I, I think I, like I said before, I think the flexibility is going to be important here because there's going to be a lot of, you know, there's going to be a kind of a, a spectrum of. Um, products here and, and, and situations that they're going to have to, um, you know, going to have to deal with. Finally, we're going to talk about formal meetings and how the FDA keeps track of what was said. So the FDA has a longstanding policy that meetings cannot be recorded. Instead, the agency produces minutes that are given to the sponsor and added to the administrative record with the major points that were covered. But we often hear about sponsors misunderstanding things that were said during the meeting or the minutes not reflecting what was actually said. And I wondered, you know, why, especially with Zoom offering a recording function, could you not just produce a transcript of these meetings so there's no ambiguity? Well, it turns out the original reason that there was no recording allowed was to prevent confusion about the meeting's outcomes. No one wanted a one-off comment to be used as a justification and when everyone else in the room thought something different, you know, still, what's to stop anyone from recording a meeting unbeknownst to the rest of the group? Well, the law, for one, you anti-wiretapping laws say you can't record anyone without the permission. And if you still did it you and were caught, you would, uh, one person told me that the FDA may not let you ever, may not ever let you into uh, a meeting ever again. I'm curious for you all, you know, we know the process. We kind of know a little more about why it is the way it is. Do you think the FDA could be convinced to change this? We've heard some some ideas like live meeting minutes and so forth, um, you know, being kind of expanded beyond, ironically, the oncology division to other divisions. Do you think there's a way that we can, I don't know if you want to call it, cut down on the confusion, the potential for confusion or anything like that? You know, I think this idea of the post-meeting, you know, collaborative production of the minutes uh, is probably the way to go. Uh, uh, you know, I'm uh, uh, you know familiar with sort of the dreaded pre-meetings, where kind of where you you meet to discuss what you're going to discuss. Um, but uh, maybe this sort of post-meeting where this sort of kind of extend or you know kind of build into the agenda some uh, time at the end where you kind of discuss what you have discussed. And, uh, you know, from there, to kind of make sure that it's not just uh, um, FDA saying, uh, you know, here's what, what happened, but sort of the, the company's having a, uh, a real-time opportunity to, uh, um, to say what they think happened at the meeting, I think would uh, not only, uh, um, you know, enhance the, the value of the meeting, but to kind of cut down on the, uh, the subsequent back and forth. So that may be the, uh, um, you know, kind of adding, you know, if it's uh, possible for 15 more minutes into the time block of everyone for, the, for those meetings seems the uh, – the best solution to me, and uh, I do, uh, um, you know, enjoy the irony of for kind of the, the you know, for clarity, we can't uh, um, capture what exactly was said. Uh, you know, we're all familiar with the uh, <laughs> arguments about uh, um, out of uh, um, out of context quotes and uh, uh, that kind of thing, and uh, you know, certainly those uh, um, uh, those things occur, but it uh, um, 
it feels like if the uh, if the goal is uh, everybody realizing what uh, what happened, there's no uh, there's no better way to do it than to kind of having a uh, um, an accurate uh, recording and then to kind of building uh, building from that. Uh, and if that uh, you know happens just at the end of the meeting or if the uh, the the meetings themselves were kind of the minutes themselves will reflect some uh, some richness from that and uh, sponsors then of course we have to spend the uh, the time to kind of uh, reply to those and make sure that their understandings were uh, uh, reflected as uh, um, as well but uh, um, uh, you know the uh, the the process does need to be improved because we we're we're um, there seems to be a lot of uh, Confusion still, even in this uh, age of technology, and you're kind of everyone's able to type things out as opposed to having to write 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 the notes by hand, and uh, all that stuff is still uh, um, people uh, don't see eye to eye, and uh, maybe that uh, um, real time meeting uh, real time minutes idea is the is the way to go. Yeah, it's it it's it's funny that the you know this is the case in this situation because the FDA records and transcribes public meetings. You know, like advisory committees, full transcript, like thousand pages. They're they're all posted. They're available. You can they're searchable. You know, workshops are are recorded and transcribed. But in this case, they don't. They don't. And uh, the other thing I was told was that a lot of the FDA puts a lot of this responsibility on the companies too um, to question when they don't understand something because if minutes are left as is when the FDA produces them. They, you know, they then you're pretty much stuck with that as the official record because um, uh, I was told that that you know like dispute resolution and so forth is hinged on well these is what the minutes say you didn't dispute that so you agree with what was in here and uh, you know the FDA has a process to allow for companies to submit their own version of minutes that will be added to the record if if there is some dispute or if there's a you know they feel like there's a mistake or something was missed or something like that but. Uh, it is interesting that it's on. It's just as much on the sponsor to review those and make sure that they reflect what the what they believe was said um, during the meeting, just as much as the FDA takes as much care as it does to make sure that it, that the minute, the minutes reflect what was what was said. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Gingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 